Friends, uh, we are in the, the week three of The Social Dilemma, and uh, we've been talking about, you know, what is a Christian response to social social media? Um, the reality is, is there's so much that we could talk about. And truthfully, I'm going to be uh, probably sharing too much today, and uh, it might not be entirely organized and or entertaining, but uh, I'm going to just uh, think of it as me pushing back against the uh, standards that we've created by uh, an entertainment culture. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I, I do. I would. I, I remember though when you talk about social media. I remember the day that I signed up for Facebook. I, I, do you remember the day that you signed up for for a social media account for the first time? I remember it. I was in college. I only signed up. I didn't even do the one who signed up. I signed up um, under my Taylor University email address because it was still only for people with .edu email addresses. Uh, I signed up for it, and um, because the Guys in my wing, I was an RA, they were freshmen, and they were like, you got to sign up for this Facebook thing. And so I was like, all right, well, do it for me. Um, I didn't have a smartphone, I didn't have a computer. This was, you know, uh, not that long ago, but it's funny how much it's changed. You know, so Facebook for me was the computer lab. That's where I encountered Facebook. But they brought out their laptop because they, they had laptops, and they signed me up on Facebook and created a profile and whatever it was at that time. And uh, I've, I've been on it ever since. Now, there's been seasons I've gotten off, um, but essentially that's the same account from, from college. I also remember the day that I discovered Google um, for the first time. I was in the library at university around the same time, and uh, I was taking this class on modern research techniques by the librarian. She's talking about how to use the computer, this new thing that it connects to the World Wide Web. It wasn't super new at that time, but still, you know, it, it, its abilities was increasing exponentially. And she, I remember her making the comment around search engines for research. She said, I, rem she, I remember her saying, I, I particularly like this one called Google. And I was like, what a funny name. Like, that's not going to go anywhere. Um, little did I know that the computer we were using, PC, and, and also a lot of Apple products and Facebook, which I got signed up by some freshmen in my wing, and Google, who I, what I thought was just a funny name, would go on to rule the world that we live in. I had no idea. Maybe you didn't. Now, I want you to know that I happen to really love technology. I find it interesting. Today, I will um, be criticizing it a fair amount, but it's coming from somebody that actually loves it and uses it quite a bit. And so I'll, I'll try to criticize it as someone who loves it um, and not as somebody who's just a hypocrite. Um, but, but I think it has uses. But I think we have to keep it in its place. And that's, that's kind of what I want to talk about today is what's an appropriate relationship to uh, modern technology. And I want to explore what that looks like. Now, a few years ago, I ran into a book called um, Flickering Pixels uh, by, by uh, Shane Hips. And this book has become, you know, one of about a dozen books outside the Bible that have really helped shape my faith as a follower of Jesus um, in the world we live in. Uh, this, along with a few others that I could share with you if you're interested, a few I've, I've shared in the past, have really kind of had this impact. And what Shane Hips has this amazing ability to do in this book called Flickering Pixels is he walks through the history of the church and even the scriptures and talks about how communication technology, because social media isn't the first communication technology, um, the invention, you know, there's been a lot of inventions over the, the history of the world. He talks about how these communication technologies have impacted the way in which we experience our faith. 
and um, he he lays it out. And so, just to give you one example, well, well, he's really pulling. This isn't his stuff. He's he's pulling from this um, uh, guy that's fairly well known, Marshall McLuhan, uh, as well as a, a guy who uh, learned from him named Neil Postman. He's pulling from some of their work, but applying it in a very accessible way. Uh, some of their books are not super accessible. Uh, they're very difficult reads, but he, he applies in a very accessible way and talks about it specifically uh, to church. But one of the phrases that, that Marshall McLuhan um, kind of coined and um, has been used a lot since his time was this really simple phrase, um, the medium is the message. Maybe you learned about this in school or you've read about it. I find it fascinating. Uh, if, you, if you aren't familiar with this phrase, the medium is the message, uh, it simply means that the nature of a medium or the channel through which a message is transmitted, so the channel that you use to communicate something, is in many ways more important than the content of that message. In other words, how you say something, the medium you use, is more important than uh, sometimes even what you say. Let me give you an example on how, how this has played out in our faith. If I was to ask you, what's What's one of the more significant ways people spend time with God? What is your personal relationship with God? Even just that question has a certain bias to it. But what does it look like for you to really connect with God and spend time with God? Now, there might be a lot of answers to that question. But I would guess that as many as half, if not more, would say something along the lines of taking, uh, spending time in the Bible, reading it, or spending time reading other types of Christian literature. It doesn't take much to argue that our primary way as American Protestant Christians, or just Christians in general in the modern world, that one of the main ways that we grow in our faith is through our devotions. We and, and we support this. Like, we have a devotion that's coming out. It's printed words in a little booklet, and we're going to try to get those to you. Now, what's interesting about that is even though that's one of the most popular ways for us to grow in our faith, it's um, not a product of Jesus' teaching. Nowhere does Jesus say that if you want to grow in your faith, you should get a book, uh, whether it's the Bible or someone else's book, and you should go home and sit in a room by yourself and read it, and that's how you're going to grow in your faith. This was not a part of Jesus' practice. The reason why devotions or reading is uh, an essential way that we grow in our faith isn't because of the teachings of Jesus, but really it's a product of the invention of the printing press. It's a product of technology. When the printing press was made available, all of a sudden everyone could have their own Bible and it spurred a significant change. It's, it's the heartbeat of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther gets a lot of credit for the Reformation, but it's really the printing press that really fuels the Reformation. It changes the way that we uh, live. Now, now here's, think about it like this. If we were to ask, are we now somehow better Christians because we have our own personal copy of the Bible? Uh, that's a debatable thing. Are we somehow better Christians because we have our own personal copy of the Bible? I would say probably not. Um, if you look back at the stories of the Bible, uh, they relate to us so much because we struggle with the same things they struggled with. And they didn't have their own copy of the Bible. They weren't a reading culture like we are. So I'm not sure that having our own personal copy of the Bible has made us better people. But I am sure of this, that the invention of the printing press changed the way we experience our faith. In other words, the medium is the message. Regardless of what that message is saying, the way in which we encounter it 
actually changes us. So you go on through and you wrestle with this and you can see a variety of things. I want to share just a, a quick quote from, uh, from Shane Hipp's book. He, he talks about the way in which writing has changed. Um, he says this. He says, as reading and writing became available to more and more people, the community was no longer needed to retain teachings, training, uh, traditions, or identity. And because the tasks of reading and writing often encouraged being alone, tribes and communities can be fractured as people spend greater amounts of time in private. He goes on to say that community in the print age has been understood primarily as a collection of discrete individuals working concurrently on their personal relationship with Jesus. Just even the term, personal relationship with Jesus, by far, probably the one of the most pivotal terms in our faith. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Friends, that is not um, something that was, came out of Christianity or out of the scripture. That is a product of technology and how it has made us much more individual people. Well, we can look at writing and we can say how writing or books have changed and shaped how we interact as humans. And, and the same can be for every other type of technology. Eventually, we uh, invented radio. And now, you know, every home had a radio in it. And then eventually television and movies and every home had a television and was able to watch. And the products of television and movies produced this phenomenon known as celebrities. Now there's people who are famous for being famous. Uh, they don't necessarily contribute to our world. They're just, they're well-known because they're well-known. And this is a product of our image-based television society. And you can ask the question once again, how has that changed our faith? In huge ways. How long did it take for uh, television culture to influence our faith? Well, pretty soon after the invention of television, you had televangelists. And uh, we still have them today. So I share all of this because I, you can kind of see how this is how we have to start thinking and wrestling with social media. And not just social media, internet. Internet and social media, it changes how we interact with one another, and it has huge impacts on our faith, regardless of what content is sharing. You could be on Facebook, and all of your friends could only share inspirational verses from Scripture, and that's great. You're not reading anything else, but it's still changing you in ways that maybe you're not entirely aware of. Now, here's the problem. Um, the impact of Internet, um, social media, we're still in the midst of it. And a lot of experts can speculate how it's going to change us as a community. And then we can kind of guess how it'll change the church as a result. Um, but we're kind of in the midst of the earthquake. The, the movement hasn't changed. So it's hard to kind of guess. But there are some things that I think we can start um, raising some red flags about. And, and some of that we were talking about last week. And I want to, I want to share with you today. And, and I kind of summarize it in two, in two ways that I think are particularly helpful. If you want to understand how internet... Um, is impacting our, um, our spiritual lives or our sense of community. And, and, and it's like this. On the internet, um, content is becoming too personalized and connections are becoming too numerous. All right? So just hold on to that. Uh, content is too personalized, but connections are too Numerous. You can write those down if you want. I'm going to talk about those. So content is too personalized, but connections are too numerous. Uh, here's what I mean. The content on the internet is too personal. Now, I'm not talking about people oversharing, but that's a thing. I'm talking about how what we encounter online is increasingly being tailored to our preference. Here's the thing. The internet, 
the internet, what, you know, whatever that is, knows everything about you. Just maybe not everything, but almost everything about you. The, the massive amount of data, and this I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory because it's just this reality. Um, the massive amount of data that's collected on you um, is prolific. And even if you sign out of stuff, People say that the, that the websites can use your location and your type of computer, and they basically guess who you are. Um, even if you're like, no, I'm not signed into the account, so they're not tracking, they don't know who I am. No, they still kind of can guess based on your user preference and all this sort of stuff. Massive amount of data. And um, so these algorithms, owned by a variety of companies and websites, are tracking you, and it's nearly impossible to keep them from tracking you. Um, and it's what, for one purpose. They want to get to know you because they want to help give you, it's not necessarily nefarious, uh, per se, they want to help you give more of what you want. Because the internet, uh, whether it's Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, is nothing more than a series of lists. And lists, by definition, have things at the top and things at the bottom, and some things that aren't included. And by forming a list, you're giving some priority to some things, and you're giving less priority to others, and then you're not including things. And everything from Facebook, Twitter, Google, most news sites, Yahoo, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, to some degree, are personalizing lists based on who's looking at them. Because the goal is to keep you on the site. So people make money by you staying on a screen longer. So if they can get to know you and kind of track your data, they can give you more of what you want, and then you're going to stay on it longer, and then they're going to make more money. So this has a couple of effects. First off, w whether you're on social media or not, engaging with the internet, blogs, YouTube, whatever, is super addictive and not by accident. We are being presented with more and more of what very sophisticated algorithms think we want, and, uh, and then we're able to just enjoy that. We leave behind things that, uh, th these algorithms leave behind things that might get us to get off the screen. And it's being presented in a way that's meant to release these sort of small amounts of dopamine and keep us engaged over and over again. Uh, one of the books that I read is uh, Anti-Social Media by uh, Siva, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. But I do want to read just a, a quick section here. Um, uh, where he kind of explains this. And I think it's uh, ex ex exceptionally helpful to think about this, especially if you find yourself on, on a screen way off, more often than you want. He says, if I offered you a choice between four cupcakes and a bag of potato chips, you would most likely choose to eat a cupcake. You would also most likely stop eating after one cupcake. A hungry person might consume two. If it was an exceptionally good cupcake, you might make a remark to that effect. If it was one of the finest cupcakes you had ever eaten, you might even tell your friends about it. No one has ever said, I ate the most amazing potato chip yesterday. I waited in line for it. More significant is that despite the fact that no single chip makes such an impression, few, if any, human beings can stop, few, if any, human beings can stop eating just one. Had I only offered you a bag of chips, there's a greater than zero chance that you would finish the entire bag. Cupcakes, uh, cupcakes can be enriching, edifying, memorable experiences. Thin, fried, salted potato chips cannot, yet we find value in both, derive pleasure from both, and gladly pay for and consume them. Facebook engages us like a bag of chips. 
and I would say other websites as well, whatever your thing is, YouTube, whatever. It offers frequent, low-level pleasures. It rarely engages critical facilities with the sort of depth that demands conscious articulation of the experience. We might turn to Facebook in a moment of boredom and look up an hour later wondering where that hour went and why we spent it on an experience so unremarkable yet not unpleasant. I think websites are designed to be unremarkable but not unpleasant because it's that sort of uh, potato chip where you're like, well, that was nice. I could probably have another one. I could probably have another one. And the next thing you know, you've been scrolling on a screen for how long? Just an immense amount of time. And you, you, know, you might feel gross afterwards because you just ate a whole bag of potato chips, so to speak, but you do it. So here's the thing. Internet, um, a variety of ways, could be extremely addictive. And I, I do want to pause here and just say this. There are a lot of ways to become addicted on the internet, um, whether it be uh, shopping, uh, just uh, Amazon makes it way too easy. Uh, these are things that you can be thinking about, friends, when you're looking at maybe taking time away from something in Lent. It, it might be that you're not going to buy anything on Amazon because you just you, you can't stop yourself. It might be a social media account. It might be YouTube. It might be just the internet in general. Um, uh, for a lot of people, it's uh, pornography. And that's a whole other category, but I want to name it here. Whatever it is for you, if you find yourself not being able to stop and you find it terribly unhealthy, I encourage you, these things are designed to be addictive. And they can control our lives at different extremes. And I don't want to lob all of it into the same category. Some things you might just need to take a break from. Some things you shouldn't be doing at all. Whatever it is for you, if you're really struggling with this, friends, this is a safe place, reach out to me. I would love to talk to you. Um, I would love to have a conversation around some really healthy practices to kind of help it get under control. Um, but here's the thing. Internet becomes extremely personalized, and it's designed to keep you engaged. It's designed to keep you hooked to it. So um, at best, we should be doing some things and be aware of that so that we're not. So first off, it's hyper-personalized, but it's also... Um, becomes addictive, but is also very partisan. There's little argument that the divide we see in our world, uh, in extremely partisan world, is connected to the influence of social media and modern news and the internet. I think in 50 years, uh, we'll understand this better because we'll have that hindsight, but it seems pretty clear that when we receive an extremely super personalized feed in, in my, research, my search results to my social media, to my YouTube results, when I, when I get just kind of a very personalized view, um, it creates partisan politics. Uh, this is what technology activist uh, Eli Parser, uh, Pariser calls in his TED Talk a filter bubble. Over time, these online algorithms create a bubble around you, and you only see that which that keeps you engaged. So you'll get Google results that other people don't get based on your Google result, based on how you search. And it's the same for Facebook and Twitter and even a lot of news sites. You're gonna get news on the homepage as like the, 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 the front page of the news is gonna be tailored to you based on what that site thinks you're interested in, given all of the data they have on you. And here's the thing, you don't get to decide what's included and more importantly, you don't get to decide get to decide what's, what's not included. So there's immense amount of information that algorithms has decided that if you saw that, it might push you away from the screen. So 
you know, we're not going to show it to you. So this creates this sort of uh, filter bubble. When you combine this with confirmation bias or this tendency for us to accept things that already support what we believe, uh, you'll see that we as humans, we love to agree with stuff that agrees with us. Like we just accept it as truth. Like, oh yeah, that, that supports what I believe. So when you put, um, when, so if you imagine that computers are putting in front of us only the things that we liked or that got us worked up over and over again, every day, hours upon hours every day. Um, and many of these things are supporting what we already believe over and over again, over and over for hours and hours and hours. We're seeing more and more of the same stuff. It keeps confirming everything we already know. What you end up having is a society filled with people who are fairly confident they understand the issue completely and they have all of the answers and they're 100% right. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's the world we live in. So the first thing is that uh, information becomes too personalized online. We have to push back from that. The second one is that our connections are too many. I'm not going to talk a lot about this um, other than to say, um, we, we kind of covered this the last two weeks. When we say that comparison becomes unhealthy because we weren't created to compare ourselves to a thousand other people we see online, um, that's kind of what I'm saying here. A lot of things happen they're not necessarily terribly wrong, but because we're engaging with so many other people, they can have a negative impact. Um, this certainly happens with uh, justice fatigue. We get involved with justice issues that are, that are involving things all around the world, and we can kind of get burnt out, or we can just engage in the term they came up with, slacktivism, where we're just doing it online, and we're not actually investing in a, in a local context or seeking change, and we're just kind of jumping on justice uh, bandwagons. There's nothing wrong with being an activist online. Uh, I, I post a lot of things, but it, but it can distract us from times from producing real change in our communities and our neighborhoods and even sometimes in the world. This is absolutely the case with what I call lament fatigue, um, where we weren't created to, to, to hear about the suffering of people all around the world every single day. You open up the news or your social media feed and you can learn about something terrible that's happened and it breaks our heart. But eventually we kind of grow numb to it because we keep seeing it over and over again. In fact, we can become so overwhelmed and distracted by something that happened in Florida or something that happened in Russia that we aren't even attached to the thing that happened to our neighbor down the street. It can create this sort of fatigue because, once again, it's good to feel and to be angry when bad things happen, but when it happens on a scale that includes every person who's alive right now, it becomes a little overwhelming and we can lose focus. So there's a real value in narrowing that. So what do we do about it? Um, I want to get back to the idea that the medium is the message. Regardless of what you're reading online, even if the majority of the posts are spiritual or scriptural, the medium of reading them online is shaping your faith. So there's a lot of content, and uh, if you had to tune out because uh, it was too early in the morning for it, you can tune back in. We're going to get into a sermon now. Uh, but I think it's important for us to spend some time and have some conversation around it. All right. We've been looking at this book in Galatians. And Paul, I think, offers us, still in the book of Galatians, some insight. Even though it was written 2,000 years ago, he offers us insight that I think is exceptionally true. Uh, he was up against toxic influencers. Not nearly as powerful as algorithms that know everything about us, but still pretty bad. And he couldn't just hop on a plane and go to Galatia and set things right. He was traveling through the Roman Empire. At this point, he was in Jerusalem. Um, and traveling in the Roman Empire took time. So he couldn't just show up and fix things, so he wrote a letter. 
And writing a letter is, uh, isn't uh, the same thing as being in person, um, but his message would probably be the same in either case. Uh, but the medium, the channel, writing a letter versus being in person um, aren't the same thing. And that's what, that's what he kind of, that's what I want to talk about as Paul wrestles with this reality that the medium is the message, that even though he's stuck writing a letter, it's not the same as being in person. Here's what he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, those people, these influencers, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that, they may have, so that you may have zeal for them. These zealous people who want to uh, alienate people from the community and win them over to their platform. Paul, Paul might as well have been talking about the internet at this point. It sounds like a lot of what we've been talking about. So here's what he says about it, verse 18. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. He says it's super okay um, to be really motivated. If you're motivated for the right things, um, it's good. And then he hints at the real issue here. He says, not just when I am with you. The people acted one way when Paul was visiting in person, and he acted another way when he wasn't. They were living these two lives, sort of one online and one offline. So it goes on, verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. I love this because he says a couple of things. Here's the first thing. He says he would prefer to be with them in person. If he had to choose between a letter and hanging out in person, he would choose to be in person. He says this often in his letters. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says this. He says, for I wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again want to come to you, but Satan blocked our way. Or in Romans, he says this, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and Mind. So we get this sense that Paul wrote letters not because he ha- wanted to, but because he had to. I don't get the sense that Paul enjoyed writing letters, um, uh, but rather as a, as a necessity. I think so many times Christian influencers today and pastors are creating platforms so big that there's never a hope that they'd ever meet somebody face-to-face. Got into a, ironically, very long Facebook thread and discussion about this. Maybe some of you engaged or read it. Um, but I don't see Paul doing this. He wishes he could be face-to-face with people. So here's the first thing that I want to say to you around communication technology, whether it's the technology of writing a letter, as archaic as that is, or engaging with people online. It should only supplement the relationships we have in face-to-face. Some of the best advice I can give you. Whatever you're doing online, it should supplement, not replace, not be better than the relationships we have face-to-face. It should remain in that place of like, no, I, I, I want to be in person. Sometimes I can't be. COVID has made that very real. I want to be in person. I can't. But I have this technology. It'll supplement the people who I know I will be in a relationship with again, people who I can do life with. That's the model I see with Paul, and I think it's really important. So first, online relationships aren't ideal. The second one is that communication isn't always effective. Here's what he says. He says, I, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. See, from a distance, he's anxious and he's worried and he's perplexed, but he knows that if he could just see them and talk to them, he'd understand. Paul, 2,000 years ago, described that feeling we get when someone texts us and says we need to talk. 
but you know, you're not going to see him till next week and you got to read the tech into the text message. And you're like, Oh my gosh, what do they mean by this? Paul's struggling with that. Cause he's like, if I could just be with you, you know, I wouldn't have this tone with you or you wouldn't misunderstand my tone. Here's the thing. Whatever technology we use, it shouldn't replace having relationships with people. God used a lot of methods to communicate to us. Everything from a burning bush to a talking donkey to worship environment to a thousand other things to the written word. But if you read scripture, you'll realize that the ultimate message, the ultimate medium for God's message of communicating to us was when Jesus was born as a baby. When Jesus, when God took on flesh, moved into the neighborhood, and could have face-to-face relationships with somebody. That's, that's the story of Scripture. That the ultimate medium for what God wants to say is in face-to-face human relationships. So much so that God took on flesh in order to do it. And, and there's still, 2,000 years later, there's still not a better way to be in relationship with people. So, friends, I just encourage you, whether you're struggling with online addiction, whether you're struggling with um, confirmation bias or living within a filter bubble or all the things that can happen online, and maybe there's, there's a thousand other things that we could be talking about, the, the answer often is to put a focus back on person-to-person relationships. This fall, we're going to be kicking off small groups, um, and we want to create space for you to know someone. To, to over a period of six months really get to know someone, someone you can be honest with and transparent about, someone you, people that you can share your struggles with. You can be in an authentic relationship and really kind of feel a connection. That's what we want to offer. Now, to do that, of course, we do need some small group leaders, and maybe that's you. Maybe you're thinking, I want, I want in this world of, of messed up distractions to help create space for people to really be known for people to really feel loved. We're going to have an opportunity to do that. If you want to be a small group leader, we're going to give you literally everything you need to be able to do it well. I encourage you to let us know. We'd love to reach out to you. Uh, with that, I'm going to invite you to just pray with me as, uh, as we finish. Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series. We're going to spend some time in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to walk through seven signs that, uh, that are in the Gospel of John, and I'm excited to begin that journey with you as we walk towards the cross and the story of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We, um, we ask that, uh, that in the midst of this world, with all of the distractions that can come our way and the things that can pull our attention, that you would um, remind us of what's important. That you'd help uh, reshape our minds, help us to um, wrestle with some hard uh, hard things, but that ultimately that you'd help us move into more authentic relationship with one another. Just as you did with us. Just as you did when you, when you moved into the neighborhood and you got to know people. Really got to know them. Sat and ate. Help us do that again. And in the meantime, Lord, we are grateful for the ways that technology can help us remain connected. But Lord, open up the door and provide the way for us to once again be with and for one another. In your name we pray.
Amen.